Welcome to Doc Talks Fishing, where science and fishing make a big splash. Join Gordon Liam with this week's guest. Hi, you folks. Uh, Gord here. And who's who's the good-looking guy I see on the other end here? <laughs> yeah, Liam Wetter. I'm excited about this guest today. Jeff Mattity is is a very well-respected biologist out in Saskatchewan, and he specializes in a very fascinating fish. Um, that's the burbot, what we're talking about. And the burbot, I mean, I've, I've had a lot of conversations with Jeff over the years at shows. I've been fishing with him many times, but a lot of the information that he knows, some of the knowledge on burbot is completely mind-blowing. There's so much more interesting and so much more of a character fish than than most people would totally, totally ever think. Oh, they're one, Liam, one of only two fish, circumpolar, one of only two circumpolar fish, so found around the world in the north. Uh, the other one, amazingly, is northern pike. Uh, so northern pike and burbot are really the only two circumpolar fish. But what amazes me, and Jeff's going to fill us in on this, is uh, burbot actually talk to one another. Uh, they communicate under the ice, and they talk to one another, and their key period is in the winter. I mean, they do some unique things in the summer, too, but what they do under the ice, talking to each other and guarding the spawning areas, if you think smallmouth bass are good parents, you, you're not going to believe what you hear about burbot. <laughs> yeah. Burbot are one of those species that will actually guard the other young from the other uh, the other spawning individuals. So I mean, they're a fascinating fish. the The other thing that that blows my mind too is burbot are the only species that can sit vertical in the water column, nose down, without without dying. It's unbelievable. And you know what fascinates me the most, though is uh, Jeff, and I've caught some gorgeous big burbot in my life. Uh, I think my biggest was a 15-pounder in Lake Simcoe. Um, uh, but I'll be honest, I was actually fishing for lake trout uh, at the time. And, and so many of the burbot that uh, I've caught, I've been either fishing for lake trout or I've been fishing for walleyes, and they've been bonus catches. But Jeff actually goes out with his brother Jason, and they'll catch six, eight, ten, a dozen, fifteen bourbon in a day. And I want to know how he actually concentrates. I want to know what he thinks is a great structure, uh, what the kind of places you should be looking at to find those heavy populations and those heavy concentrations of bourbon. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you think about it, the vast majority of the burbot that we catch throughout the year. I mean, we live on pristine lake trout water. We spend a lot of time lake trout fishing and they're they're the bycatch. So it is interesting for, for people that really hone in on the species, learn where the high concentrations are, and then learn little tips to, to actually catch these fish. Yeah, but you know, enough of you and me talking, let's uh, let's bring Jeff in. And you know, people will probably be thinking too, Burr, but what, you know, kind of an ugly looking fish. They've got a, got a face only another uh, mother burbot would love, but I love catching burbot. I know you love catching burbot and I don't care what they look like. But to me, they are gorgeous fish. And Jeff, I know they're gorgeous fish for you. Welcome to today's show. Well, thank you for having me. Um, there, as you said, a face that only a mother could love. That might have a lot to do with why I feel so closely such kin with burbot. Um, <laughs> people ask me why I focus on burbot so much. And it, it actually, I think I've told you that it goes back to when my son Ben was about four or five years old. And he was wanting to go out fishing with me in the spring when it was nice and calm, nice and mild. And, uh, you know, the, the one year, the walleye just did not bite. And I took him to a burbot spot, and he absolutely fell in love with them. And as you were talking about them being one of only two sort circumpolar species, um, they capture my imagination, not because, as Ben experienced, there were big fish and lots of them, as Al Linder would say. Um, but for me, they're an unbelievable character fish. And that's what I want to discuss today. 
And I think that's why, again, I feel kin with them was because I grew up as a hockey player and I was always considered the character player. <laughs> um, you know, the guy that would go in the corners, the guy that would take a, a, the wrong penalty, whatever the case may be, I was the character guy that everybody liked to have around. And I think Burbit should be that fish for all ice anglers. Yeah. You, you know, Jeff, uh, almost every other species that we fish for, uh, walleye, perch, muskies, pike, uh, <clears throat> lake trout, whitefish, they either spawn in the fall or they spawn uh, in the spring. Burbot, I, I believe they must be one of the only fish that spawn under the ice in the middle of winter. And even more uh, intriguingly, they gather up in large groups and they twist and turn and squirm along the bottom. Like, how cool is that? Well, it is. It's, it's, uh, it's something to appreciate in, um, again, a character species that the biology of that fish is such that it requires the exact one to four degree temperature for the gonads to mature and to, you know, give that cascade of um, hormones for those fish to find each other and and spawn in in concert yeah. yes yeah that's fascinating would you would you mind like uh explaining because i know we had a great conversation uh last year at, at uh, one of the fishing shows about actually how they do group up like into a tight ball like uh, almost like you put a bunch of elastics together and make an elastic ball uh that's what they do when they're spawning and they literally roll around on the ground you mind just like telling me a little bit more about that because that was one thing that just like captured my attention and, and was just fascinating i mean you don't see any other fish species doing some sort of thing i like maybe maybe what what causes them to do so or, or what's the reasoning behind it well the, their anatomy is unique because very much like a, a crappie or you know a, a, a panfish that has all of its internal organs right underneath the chin um and then all the rest is, you know, tail and meat. Um, Burbet are very much like that. They have, their organs are pushed very far forward. Hmm. And that gives them this tail that has unbelievable dexterity. And um, for anybody who's never seen that, and I've just seen Burbet males courting the females. I've never been able to film it, but I've seen films where it, it's usually... It, from what I've read, uh, three or four males per female, and they're just pushing on her. They're trying to coax those eggs out. And as soon as those eggs begin to flow, that's when they release the milt. So uh, they, they do this well off bottom. They do it along the bottom. They do it out over open water. They can do it almost anywhere. Um, but the eggs have to find that, that uh, little haven in amongst some gravel, which is, in my experience, where I look for burbot in March, uh, where I live, and um, they, they hatch, and then they go pelagic for years before they actually come back to shore. Really? You mean they're floating in open water, Jeff? They go open water eating, um, you know, uh, zooplankton and young-of-the-year minnows. And as walleye will come to shore usually by fall and be running shorelines, weed lines, that type of thing, um, from what I understand in the literature that I've read, they go pelagic for at least two years before they return to the shoreline and start probably uh, getting ready to participate as adults yeah. in the spawn. Wow, that's cool. You know, something else we talked about, <clears throat> excuse me, um, uh, at the shows, and you and I have talked about this many times. These are a fish that actually communicate with each other. They almost talk to each other, eh? Uh, they have uh, uh, a swim bladder, and I think it's called striated, and they drum. They actually make drumming noise by expanding and contracting the swim bladder. And what's the purpose of doing that? Well, it's quite an, an 
extraordinary. And actually, it's only been within probably the last five years that this vocalization has been captured on, on audio. And um, my description of it is is very much like a, uh, a subtle bur or a distant uh, sound of a motorbike revving. That and that's from them pushing air in and out of their swim bladder. And uh, that's how they, they find each other. And hmm. um, the, the reason why they investigated vocalization was because um, bourbon are really successful river fish. And in the uh, Western United States, they have studied, they've done quite a bit of work on burbot, and they have put burbot in a, a, a fish trap in a little backwater area and come the next day and it was full. And then they moved the trap with a, and put some fish in it and the next day it was full. And there's no way that those fish had any kind of a chemical cue because it would have been washed away by the, this like big river. Yeah. Um, so that's when they started investigating this. And uh, yeah, they can, they can talk to each other. We don't know what they say yet, but <laughs> get, maybe someday we will. Get me out of this trap and all the other ones came in. Yeah, like talk about an opportunity for commercial fishing. Oh, my they, Lord. They, you know, um, they actually have been commercially fished, um, but uh, they've never been a, a high-dollar fish, even though they're incredible uh, on the table. But um, I just wanted to go back, if I could, yeah, um, to Liam's question about them that, that having that articulated body. And um, it was, as I said, very cute when my son Ben, at age four, was an accomplished burbot fisherman. And we would actually invite friends to go fishing with us. And uh, one day, Ben knew that the best way to handle a burbot is when it comes out of the, the, out of the hole, you grab the line and then you lip lock it like a bass. Yeah. And uh, he was explaining this to my big, my one cousin, who's a six foot three, 250 pound man, and he didn't listen to Ben, and he grabbed it across the back of the head, and that burbot wrapped its tail four times around his arm, and that big man squealed like you would not believe. <laughs> so that's just how how articulated those fish actually are. They're just they're they're like a snake. They're just like anything that can um, wrap around things. Um, I don't know if it's ever been seen, uh, but I, I see no reason why burbot couldn't take down prey that's good size by wrapping around it right. I, I maybe someday i'll be able to prove that but uh until then uh, you know anything's a possibility i in my mind you, you know jeff uh, that makes sense too because you know when we clean them uh when preparing them to uh, for dinner uh, really it's everything behind the rib cage isn't it there's not much mm -hmm. meat up front no, no, it's it, it, that you have that big chest cavity and then you have that enormous liver. And then if you've got breeding fish of that year, you, the testes and ovaries take up at least a third to half of the body cavity. Hmm. I, I actually, I, I wanted to ask you about the liver because like, believe it or not, sounds like such a minute thing, but, but the liver of bourbon is actually is pretty interesting just in and of itself and how it changes sizes throughout the year. It is, and they rely on it. And if I could just speak to the food, the food value of the liver, um, First Nations from like Inuit and other First Nations in Northern Canada, um, prize, that was a a prize piece of the animal was the liver hmm. and uh, they've they've eaten it for millennia and uh, hundreds of years yeah at least and um, the liver of a burbot uh, and this is some literature that I just recently read is three to four times the vitamin A and vitamin vitamin A and vitamin D content 
of high-end cod liver wow. oil. Hmm. So, so it, it is amazing. And, uh, but speaking to the health of the fish, the health of the fish, um, regardless of the species really, um, if you do a necropsy on any fish or keep fish for the table, um, the condition of the liver tells you a lot about the condition of that fish. Uh, so, for example, a big starving fish of any species, um, if you open that fish up, the liver is going to be considerably smaller, like perhaps half the size, as if it was a healthy fish. And burbot, um, I, I compare them to everything else in, that I find uh, impressive. Um, they're very much like a, a shark in that their liver is a huge part of their anatomy, their health, and um, you know just the, the you know, remarkable size that it gets. However, speaking to that, um, burbot don't spawn every year. Mature burbot don't spawn every year, and burbot that are non-spawners will stay on the spawning shoal for weeks, if not months, without eating anything, and they'll finally be. And I was told by uh, Dr. Von Paragamian, who was one of the main people in Idaho uh, years back, that uh, filled me in a lot on, on bourbon anatomy and bourbon behavior. Um, but he said a bourbon that's a non-breeder for that year shows up on the spawning shoals, cleans house, eats everything that won't leave, and then is there until either A, the eggs start hatching and there's, you know, some kind of a chemical cue that tells them, okay, you're done, go rest. Uh, or it is their liver finally shrinks to a point where it's a tipping point between survival and death. And they will choose survival in that case and leave. Uh, other burbot will have to take, take over. But uh, the, the liver, I'm glad you brought it up because it's one of the most uh, critical aspects of, of the burbot and their lifestyle. Jeff, I'm trying to understand. Now, did you say those are the non-spawners that come in and, and do that? Or are they the spawners? Because I understand that um, they don't all spawn every year. And yet um, the non-spawners actually protect and guard Yes, they do. Um, the spawners are the rock stars of that year class. Um, they go out, they feed, they show up, they spawn some of their eggs, they go back out. They, they, the, where, I, uh, where Ben and I used to fish, and actually it holds up everywhere gone. Um, if you keep a spawning fish, um, you won't be able to really tell. A lot of people go, oh, gee, that's a big female. Um, but the gonads, the, the testes on a male that's a breeder, has, has as much volume, has much size as a female. The only way you can tell, apparently there are some morphological differences in males and females. But honestly, the only way you can tell is if it's running with milk, it's a male. Um, other than that, you can't tell breeders from males and females, breeders from each other. Um, but the non-breeders, um, if you keep a non-breeder, and uh, I was proud of Ben because he actually noticed this before I did. When we were keeping burbot, he, I was saying, well, that's a, that's a male, and that's a female, and that's a male. And then all of a sudden you'd open one up that's a male full of milt, and it's like, oh boy, is that ever male. And uh, we got to the point where those fish that I was considering spawned out males, those weren't spawned out males. Those were non-breeders. And Dr. Paragamian actually confirmed that with me. So those were the fish that stayed. Those were the fish that lost body condition. Those are the fish that, as I said, put themselves to the point where their liver was failing, to some degree at least, wow. uh, before they would leave. The males and females, the breeders of that year, they their livers are huge, their testes and, and ovaries are huge, and they're the ones that look like a, a kermit. <laughs> they look like a toad. Uh, while as the other non-breeders, they get a their eyes sink in. They're, they they will often have um, 
a distinct uh, point at which the the skull de you know declines into this this uh, muscle that's wasting, hmm. and um, those are the ones that when I was when I was younger guiding at Last Mountain Lake, we would always see Burbit on the on the boat launch sitting on the boat launch and they were so desiccated and they were so weak and they were so out of it you could net them and inspect them and let them go and those i truly believe were the non-breeders of that year huh. which makes me believe um a lot of people assume that if that fish was a non-breeder this year it's going to be a breeder next year huh. and i'm not so sure um, I think that fish may even need a whole year plus to recover to the point that it produces eggs. And that could be why um, worldwide uh, burbot populations are fragile. Wow. That's fascinating. Like we, we all know smallmouth uh, will bed in the spring and, and guard the young. But the, like what you're saying is it, the uh, burbot are... are when they're when they're not when they're in their off season they're not breeding this isn't the year that they're laying eggs or milting they're protecting the other fish's young and the yeah. other fish's egg eggs so and it's like what kind of hormones cause that kind of behavior yeah that's because there's nothing that i can think of on earth other than homo sapiens that you know put that kind of care and attention into other people's children Have you ever wondered what it takes for soft plastic baits to truly uphold the Rapala legacy? As an angler since childhood, Rapala has been a part of the entire journey. I want to welcome you to Crush City, a destination in the mind of every angler where the fish are big and the bite is hot. After meticulous testing, I can confidently say that the Crush City soft plastics live up to the legacy. With superior shapes, action, and scent, these baits have become the go-to for myself and other avid multi-species anglers ultimately putting more fish in the boat or on the ice. The smart injection technology combines custom combinations of color, flake, salt, and scent that are added precisely where needed for the perfect presentation. Experience the difference for yourself. You can try the family-priced Crush City Soft Plastics and discover Crush City. That is, that's amazing. They're, you're absolutely right. There's no other fish that does that. Yeah. In fact, in fact, other species, whether it's uh, northern pike or smallmouth or walleye, they'll actually <laughs> they'll actually eat the others' eggs. But you're telling me burbot when they're spawning, the non-spawners kind of guard and, and help protect the overall population. Yeah, it's sort of like okay, mom and dad, you guys are taken care of. It's all good. You do your thing. Go eat, just bring back some fertilized eggs for us to take care of, and we'll 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 uh, what is it? Reciprocate yeah. that favor next year or the year after. Wow. Yeah. So it's, they really do just work together as a as a whole as a species, which is, I mean, like you said, Gordo. Um, a lot of the other fish are are when there's when there's hatched young, they're they're feeding on those fish they're they're doing more harm than good to their own population where burbot are the their complete opposite i mean even smallmouth um have been have been shown to eat some of their young even after they've protected it for so long i mean it's it's so interesting that that burbot actually do put that much effort into the, like the overall good of their of their population yeah yeah well and for sure because as i said those those breeders of the year are so peerless their skin is perfect. Their body shape is perfect. Their eyes are perfect. They're they're perfect, but uh, it's it's kind of funny because of course they don't rationalize like we would. But I would be going. I'm sure going to appreciate being a breeder this year because next year, oh boy, <laughs> and the year after that, maybe, oh boy. Wow. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And yeah, you're talking wow. about cutthroat species. Um, take a look at brook trout that uh, actually will go out of their way to eat other people's kids. They can tell by by scent their kin. They can tell kin by scent. And wow. they go out of their way to eat other 
other brook trout eggs and fry and so that uh, their their progeny their direct progeny can populate that stream wow but that's a tell for another day yeah boy we have, we do have to come back and t I, we should tell everyone that uh, jeff works at the uh, big saskatchewan fish hatchery and and uh, is a biologist and and works at the the, ha the hatchery in saskatchewan that you culture, I think, brook trout, rainbow, splake. Uh, I think you have tigers too, Jeff. You do the lake. That's trout, correct. Uh, walleye camps. Yeah. That's a. We will come back and revisit this. Yeah, well, that would be lovely because uh, I like I like bragging about <laughs> uh, the hatchery. Um, I was a kid there in university, uh, maybe Liam's age, maybe a little younger than Liam, and. Uh, I wanted to go back so bad, and it took me 23 years to get back there. And I'm going to be there until they tell me it's time to hang it up. <laughs> well, that's not going to be for a while, I hope. Uh, Jeff, no, me neither. Jeff, I, I, let's get back to Burbit, and I'm going to really, mm -hmm. I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, sure. Because I got to be honest, and I think Liam's in the same boat. And and you know what? I'll bet 90 percent of the folks that are listening to us. Uh, we've all caught burbot, but most of them have been accidents. Uh, we catch them when we're lake trout fishing as an accident. Uh, we might be walleye fishing and, wow, a bonus burbot. But you seem to be able to go out and you have 10, 15, 20, 25 fish days. So I'm going to pin you right down now. And because sure. so many of the folks listening here, I know this is going through their minds. Uh, in the winter, burbot spawn, and that's the best place to be ice fishing. So what does the absolute perfect burbot fishing spot look like? Uh, what kind of structures are we talking about? What kind of bottom are we talking about? What kind of cover features are we talking about? If I want to target burbot, what should I be looking for? Well, that's great because... Um so much that we've talked about so far has been, and it's uh, pertained to the spawn. Well, as soon as it gets too cold to put your boat in the water, um, the burbot are pre-spawn. They're pre-spawn and they're feeding. They're feeding a lot. Um, and depending on the fall, I truly believe that a warm fall puts them behind the eight ball only in that they need cold water to perform best biologically. And cold water is four degree water and colder. And, and so water. they really put the feed bag on around the time, and I haven't been able to, to uh, quantify this with observations, but around the time that the Cisco's are spawning, the Cisco's and whitefish are spawning, it's finally cold enough for the Cisco's and whitefish to be spawning. The uh, burbot are going to be in and around there. They're going to be eating cisco eggs. They're going to be eating whitefish eggs. They're going to be doing all those types of things. Every size of burbot is going to be uh, eating everything from cisco eggs to, you know, shiners that are in there to little walleyes that are in there to whatever the case may be. So when I'm talking about cisco habitat that they're spawning at, the premium, and so here's the Here's what you've been waiting for me to say. The premium burbot spot early on and all the way up until the spawn is current areas. So they can be dangerous. But these current areas where the Cisco's, where I live, are spawning are the narrows between big, uh, different basins of a lake. Um, those typical areas where the fall walleye guys and their waders are, are fishing with their, you know, husky jerks and fishing with their repellas. Um, those are burbot areas. And it's funny because a lot of walleye guys catch burbot. Walleye habitat, burbot habitat is very inter, interlocked at these prime times, at this prime time. So those, those narrows are, those current areas are, dangerous at first ice so you have to be careful at first and last ice um, but you know you can be adjacent to the current and have fish moving in and out of those areas um, 
once the burbot reach, once the water temperature reaches that cold, um, it's been documented that burbot really start moving. They move, they move. I think they're talking to each other. They're schooling up, they're feeding up, and and they will fill their belly with anything that's available. Um, as I said, all the way down to Cisco eggs. Um, perch will do the same. I think I told you, Gord, we got into some big perch at first ice, and they were throwing up wads of Cisco eggs. And that was a that was adjacent to a current area where we fished at first ice. So um, current areas are really, really good. Um, people have died in Saskatchewan this year <laughs> at first ice, and and I so I'm I'm really. Uh, hesitant to tell people get in there where the current is but do it safely and i think you do it just fine and then after that so i'm just saying you can eliminate a whole lot of places if you just go to current areas where you think you'd catch walleye you'll catch burbot particularly at night um however when they're spawning they'll bite they'll bite all day so that's when you want main lake uh shoals with some nice, clean gravel, coarse sand, um, because they're not going to spawn in the mud. They'll go anywhere to feed, but they will not spawn in subpar habitat. So uh, it doesn't have to be near current. Um, I find they're more current-oriented in the summertime than they are even in the winter. Um, but that's your, that's why it's a, uh, a big hint. Um, they live in current all summer. They'll go in current regardless of the temperature. Um, and again, it has probably a lot to do with their biology that we don't quite understand yet. Um, but when they're spawning those main lake shoals, um, they, it's the, I, I find it's the coarse habit, coarse gravel. Um, but if they have adjacent rock to root crayfish out of and that type of thing, that's where your breeders are going to be feeding. They're not going to go a long ways from the spawn, but uh, their spawning area, but uh, they're not going to be going in the spawning area to feed because there's nothing there. So um, the only time you'll find food in a, a non-breeder's stomach is if Ben and I went the next day after he poured the rest of our minnows down the hole, um, we catch a, a non-breeder that has sunken in eyes and everything like that, but a round belly. Uh, we keep that fish, and it's right full of chum. Wow. So uh, th those are the two areas that I would say, and I hope I kind of answered your question there a little bit, Gord. Jeff, depth-wise, talk to talk to. Oh yes, are, yes. Are, are they deep in the in the daytime and then move shallow? Um, everything I've seen uh, to seem to catch. Um, I can remember when we used to be lake trout fishing with tip-ups and live bait and dead bait, and you could almost set. Uh, your watch on sunset, and all of a sudden the tip-ups start going off, and they're bourbon. Um, but where are they? And you, you catch them in the middle of the day. What what am I doing wrong? Am I fishing those, too, those, deep, too shallow? Those are those are the spawning breeders and non-breeders that go shallow. Um, at the, the so the beginning of the season, and I apologize, I didn't talk about depth, but. Um, in the beginning of the season, near those current areas were after walleyes. Um, this was the classic scenario that really got my imagination going about this fish. Was we were in 25 feet of water. The sun's coming, it's going down. Um, there was an incredible year class of shiners that year. Um, and they started coming off the bottom up to about two feet. And we stayed with them and we caught walleye. We got up to four feet off the bottom. We're still catching walleye as we kept our jigs in that, uh, right in with the shiners. And uh, 10 feet off the bottom, the walleye stopped. But we still had fish coming up. And this is right in the pitch black dark now. Those fish 10 feet off the bottom were burbot. We caught them 
all the way up right underneath the ice. Um, I was using my headlamp and we were just using minnow heads actually. And I was throwing the bodies, I was chumming the bodies in the hole. And uh, some of the bodies had the swim bladder attached so they were floating. And I was putting on a, another minnow head and I saw the water jump in the hole. And I went over with my headlamp into the hole and there was a burbot looking straight up the hole at me. Wow. 25 feet of water. Wow. So um, they, they, they were in the bottom, but they followed those shiners all the way up onto, to underneath the ice. And we've also had the scenario in current where burbot have not been given very much respect as far as their ability to be strong swimmers. And that's fair because if you compare a pike or muskie, that has all fin at the tail um, and, a, and a torpedo body. Uh, Burbot can't compete with that kind of physicality. Uh, however, um, we found that in 10 feet of water in the, in, right in the current, we had fish coming up, coming through right, at, right in the middle of the, of the water column. And uh, we were fishing pike and burbot. And we had an underwater camera so we, we were able to, even though in that current it was difficult to see, uh, we, we uh, confirmed that those were burbots swimming straight through five feet off the bottom into the current. Wow. So we really do believe they were going upstream and then getting into the current and following the thaw wag all the way back and doing it all over again. Because that wasn't, those were not uh, spawning fish. Those were wow. February January February fish that were still in that current so wow. um, so when they are spawning those non-breeders are there they don't leave they don't leave for weeks and weeks as I said so they're there during the day they can be caught during the day it's not easy to get them to bite because they're not hungry or at least they're convinced that they aren't going to eat something um, but we found ways to definitely get them to bite, regardless of breeders or non-breeders. Breeders just come in, and everybody says, "Yeah, burbot, they just bite no matter what," and that's really not the case, especially with non-breeders. They're tough. And and in March, you're looking for places with gravel on the bottom. Is that like yeah? Because you, uh, you mentioned close to the eggs close there. to the basin though, like oh, okay. really close to the basin. They they go really deep. They go down into 30 40 50 feet those breeders to feed up and and they are feeding right so so yeah and they want to go straight vertical back into to spawn and then straight back down they they take quite a few forays um you know scientists say that they they breed multiple times but they what they don't they produce one batch of eggs so that it takes many forays for them to drop all their eggs, as many as three million eggs on a really, really big bourbon. Uh, wow! So I, I have kind of two questions for you that kind of coincide with each other, just related to that. So often, like we, we like a lot of the bourbon that that I catch throughout the season are, are are come when I'm lake trout fishing by complete accident, and it's like nine times out of ten, or or or. Uh, 10 times out of 10 a dead bait that's near the bottom now it's fairly common knowledge among anglers to target burbot near the bottom but you're saying that doesn't necessarily need to be the case no when i i, I just want to tell a little anecdotal story when i was back when i was investigating some of the newest things about burbot with dr Paragamia, they put me onto this article from sweden and they were concerned about burbot and pike eating char in this one body of water so they were doing stomach analysis on all these burbot and pike that they were catching and the burbot were out competing the pike for char suspended in the dark at night and uh, so that just goes to show they'll go wherever the food is yeah. as I said those they, they followed the shiners right up into my hole so um, they, I don't, I don't truly believe that the burbot are that bottom oriented as much as everybody right. thinks. Um, however, they do feed from top. I, I, I believe they feed from top to bottom. 
And uh, as I said, in that situation with the char, the char were at a disadvantage uh, to the the burbot. And the burbot and pike, you could you could argue, have the same kind of lateral line. They have this long lateral line, and the burbot knew exactly where the char were in the dark. And the pike, being more visual predators, yeah, they were trying to chase the pike down mostly uh, in the light of day. And the char, the, <laughs> the char just kept going. So. Um, they really do feed, but during the spawn, during the spawn, this is a perfect transition into my Cisco story as it pertains to pike and as it pertains to burbot. Remember I said that the burbot just feed, they glut on uh, Cisco eggs in the fall? Well, the, the tide turns when the burbot are spawning. When the burbot are spawning... The Cisco's are there relentlessly. They're there relentlessly. And uh, what the Cisco's do, and it's an amazing strategy, but the burbot are so oriented to the bottom where the eggs are. They're oriented to the bottom where the eggs are um, and where they're going to spawn. That the Cisco in five feet of water, eight feet of water, will just go right up underneath the ice and then go straight down and feed until they get kicked out of there. And then it goes straight up and feed. And back and forth all day, those non-breeders, it's just got to be unbelievably agonizing for them. Huh. Um, and then where the pike come in is the pike are the only fish that the burbot can't intimidate. You know, the non-breeders will swarm a pike and the pike will just, I don't know, if, the, if one of them's small enough, the pike will eat them. <laughs> and then the pike are oriented to the burbot spawn because... Those Cisco's are just sitting right there. They're right there. Those Cisco's are right underneath the ice for the pike to jump. Wow! So the those so, uh, eggs are attracting so much, and no, like you would never realize that. Oh, and it's it, it's all species at all times of the year, but because the burbot are the only ones spawning underneath the ice, it is an event. It is a banquet, and everybody takes advantage of it. That's just the way freshwater habitats, worldwide habitats, work. It's just, that's why all species are so important to the big picture. We're proud to have Williams Lures as one of our podcast partners. Whether you're fishing for brookies, bass, or walleyes, lake trout, northern pike, or muskies, you can always find a Williams spoon for the occasion. They're precision crafted in Sherbrooke, Quebec, and every one is a testament to quality. For over a century, Williams has adorned their spoons with jewelry-grade silver and 24-karat gold. That not only ensures longevity, but provides unparalleled flash that captivates even the wariest fish. When you're planning your next fishing trip, be sure to put Williams spoons into your tackle box. And Jeff, I, I've got to ask a clarification. When you talked about uh, 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 they go in and out, in and out, is that like on a daily basis when they're spawning? So they'll spawn under the ice shallow at night, and then do they go back out during the day and feed heavily and then come back in and spawn when you were saying they were in and out, in and, in and out? Yeah, yeah, sorry for that, but... What I meant was the breeders will come in, they'll, they'll be able to drop a certain number of eggs. I truly believe the peak of the daily spawn is in the dark. Yes. Um, because the reason I say that is because our interactions with burbot during the day are probably 75% non-breeders versus oh. breeders. Wow. And breeders that come in during the day, they're caught immediately. Because they're there and they see something that they want to eat and they just eat it. Um, I'm not, I don't think anybody knows how uh, the breeders set up, you know, the boudoir for, for the nighttime events. Um, but they just seem to come in and go out. You don't see, like on the camera, on the aqua view, we don't see a big breeder fish. Like, holy cow, look at the body on that fish. Um, we don't see that fish mill about. We do not see that fish hang around. Um, she's either there, she or he 
uh, are either there passing through or they come right in and get bit and, and bite the jig. So, um, uh, but truly, and the, I truly believe after hundreds of hours, a hundred plus hours of filming with the Aquaview, I've never filmed the burbot ball, the spawning burbot ball. And that's, be, I truly believe that's because I, I didn't film all night. Yeah. Wow. Because we caught our fish and we didn't have to stay all night. Spill the beans now, Jeff. What are you using for baits? And, and well, how are you using them? Um, well, we used a lot of minnows, a lot of shiners, and they're effective. Without question, they're, they're effective. Um, but as I said, when it's the uh, spawn time, we are very oriented to the bottom. We are very oriented to uh, being obnoxious and, and, and pounding the bottom. So we started out, like everybody else, catching bourbon on our walleye tackle. So that's a quarter-ounce jig, maybe, you know, an eighth-ounce spoon. Uh, and, you know, so when that, then that caught fish. However, um, when we started filming, we started... Before we started filming, we started having a heck of a time actually hooking and landing the bourbon. We didn't know why. Like you hook a fish and you know, you're looking at a treble on a quarter ounce spoon and you're like, how could he get off of that? Because their mouth is like, you know, a rubber boot. Like it, it, it's, it, it's not all bone or anything. So we started filming under Ben and I, my, my little four-year-old scientist and I, um, we started filming and we realized that those non-breeders, breeders will come in and eat it and they don't miss it. They, we were getting big fish, but we were only hooking and landing as, as little as a tenth of what we were hooking. So we're filming these fish and these non-breeders do something very amazing. What they'll do is they'll come in and the lack of a better term, they give the jig a stink eye. They just, they tip their nose right up to it and they fan their, their pectoral fins and their pectoral fins are huge. It's very ominous. Um, and then they leave. And then the same fish will come by and it'll do a fin swat with its pectoral fin. And then it'll come in and, and when, when you feel that, that's usually when you set the hook. And you miss it. Um, and then it comes in and it does a belly sweep. And it just pushes your jig right into the bottom. Like it just crushes it into the bottom. That's when you set the hook. And that's usually when you hook it for a little bit of time. But their skin is like leather. So we started using bigger jigs. And the, the classic is, and I still think it's the best, is the three-quarter ounce real bait flasher jig um the tournament series that gord had some involvement with me uh, in getting was the one with the gamma gatsu hook the 2x strong gamma gatsu hook that's your lake trout that's your pike and that's your burbot jig um even in eight feet of water we we're using three quarter ounce because we wanted to have a concussion when it hit the bottom concussion just bang 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 um and uh of course, that would bring the bourbon in. If you were with the camera, you'd be able to manipulate that. And what we did was, instead of letting it do all those body posturing things, we'd lift it at least two feet off the bottom so that when it came up, the only thing it could grab it with was its mouth. And we converted virtually every single fish we could see. And even with the flasher, the hummingbird, we would wait until we saw that fish involved with the jig on the bottom, lift it up and hold it, and it would eat it. And to add fuel to the fire, what we did was instead of using shiners that we had to you know, swap out every time, we used Cisco Belly. So a friend of mine loves keeping Cisco's, loves it when I keep Cisco's for him. Um, so I fill at the Cisco, 
And then I use the uh, belly strip of the Cisco belly, and it will not come off. And we, you could catch, I don't know, 20 burbot on one Cisco belly before it's completely disintegrated. And, uh, yeah, they just have such a hate on for, for Cisco's, A, and B, Cisco's are probably one of their favorite meals. You know, just like they terrorized those char in Sweden, I know they're terrorizing Cisco's. At the on the at the thermal climb all night, so uh, yeah, so that's what we use, and then we we actually our friend uh, John Bondy makes a heck of a bourbon lure. He has no idea that it's a bourbon lure, but it's a bourbon lure. The uh, Junior Wobbler, which is four point four ounces, it's six inches long, and it has a number eight Colorado blade on the back. That is the ultimate, ultimate decoy. Because the flasher jig is not only a decoy, but it's also a hook bait. The the uh, the Bondi is without question the best burbot decoy. And then you have when we're fishing two of them, where you know Jason will be fishing, brother Jason will be fishing a flasher jig in Cisco belly. Right. I'll be fishing the the Bondi, and we had to take the hooks off of the Bondi because I don't fish the Bondi with hooks on anymore because the burbot were punching holes in their sides and they were doing all kinds of stuff pushing that thing crushing that thing against the bottom with their with their body um and then hitting you know hitting it with their mouth too but um it's just uh, that's not a very respectful way to deal with fish that you intend to release at least some of them you you always talk about like that too i mean we, we you and i've talked about this together but you've done a number of seminars on it that you you're literally just you're not even expecting you're not even trying to hook fish with uh, with the decoy lure, you're simply calling in burbot, and then they're going to eat the bait that you've set there to actually. I mean, I do that often. Like I'll I'll use baits that'll call in fish, and then switch to something. It's kind of like the attract versus the trigger, and I mean that's what you're doing nearly all of the time. Or 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 are you are you just implementing that when the fish aren't around? Um, I'm using it all the time because, um, especially if I'm using the Aquaview, because I I can evaluate a spot especially when we're we're whole hole hopping or we're going to different shoals you know so we're hitting several spots during the day um you know on any given year um the burbot might be really working this east side of last mountain lake um i want to be able to know that quick and so with the bondi we're, we're just seeing if there's fish around um it's it's the closest thing to you know I, and i really think the the decoy concept um has to you have to push it until you know it doesn't work um for example for perch i tried to use the biggest uh, rip and wrap you know just to see if i could decoy them nope <laughs> they are afraid of that thing but you bring it down to the right size, you could you can hook and, and catch fish. So, um, but the yeah, I, to to decoy them is is really really fun. Yeah, I no. uh, really and and the burbot because they're chasing ciscos out of their habitat that are several pounds. You know, you need a, a lure that's big enough to portray those to yeah. that that uh, prey right. or that that uh, egg stealer. That's amazing, Jeff, because, because uh, you know, we've talked so many times. We over-finesse so many times. You're now talking about using a musky bait to catch uh, four, five, six, seven, eight-pound fish. But they, they just they don't see it as a, a musky bait. They see it as a, as a small Cisco. And the other thing that intrigues me is, if I'm on a spot where I've caught burbot before and I'm not seeing anything, you're telling me, you know, a really good strategy is to drop down that bondy bait and actually call them under the hole. You're going to know immediately they come out of the woodwork. Wow. They just come out of every direction. And these were some of our best spots that we had expectations for the burbot to come in on it. And they just came in on every direction on this thing. And it was, it was crazy. The other thing is... Um, whether it's the Bondi, and if you can't get a hold of the Bondi, you know, just a typical uh, Berkeley 8-inch um, uh, grub on a 2-ounce head. 
that'll bring them in too. And uh, I caught one of my biggest pike a couple of years ago when the, the year that we introduced the, the Bondi to the Burbot. Um, I, I didn't have the Bondi or Jason was away with it anyways. And uh, I was fishing the eight inch, the big eight inch uh, saltwater grub with a two ounce lake trout head. And out of nowhere, this pike just T-boned it out of nowhere. And as I said, they were they're there to hunt Cisco's. So you're going to cross paths with all these big pike. Yeah, match. And my biggest pike uh, to date through the ice was a 46 incher that that hit the Monday. Huh. We're burbot fishing, and this 46 inch pike came in, you know, exercised her authority, and just crushed that thing. I'm glad I had hooks on it that day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. That was the right day to have hooks on it. Though I wanted to ask you about this. I know I'm, I know that lake trout or or burbot rather are one of the only species that that have the ability one of if not the only species that have the ability to sit nose down perfectly vertical in the water column straight up and down and still breathe where a lot of fish would would are, are just simply not able to do that and survive but burbot burbot do it quite often right yeah doug Stangy said he had burbot in the aquarium at in fisherman there he said that fish would do things that would kill another any fish he said it'd sit vertical in the corner um, I have a feeling it has to do with their swim bladder. Like their swim bladder is so unique. They can vocalize with it. They can go to 40 feet back up to eight feet. No problem. Um, they can be caught so deep that they could get barrel trauma. There's no fish that's, that they couldn't. Um, but uh, I think there's the shape of their swim bladder. And I've been looking, I, I haven't, I have to pay more attention when I fill it some this year to try and not destroy the swim bladder when you open it up because that's very hard not to do. Um, but it's got to have something to do with that. And then with the burbot in the summertime, at temperatures that are not ideal for them, um, this is an anecdotal story. So this is a secondhand story, but I truly believe this, this was true. Um, there's a lake by Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, and it is super clear. It's beautiful. It's small, but it's beautiful, deep, cleared lake. And the uh, when I was in Saskatoon, there's quite a few guys that were part of the scuba club. And they went there and they came back and one of the guys told me, I, I believe him true because he was I was working in the same lab as he was. He said, we went down there and at the thermocline, I love there were burbot sitting head down and they were like candles at the same level as far as the eye could see. Wow. He said, it was so freaky. That was the craziest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> And so I really think they do have to go into some kind of a, a, a hibernation and to tolerate the heat of the summer. Um, but if there's oxygen at or below the thermocline, I think you might have some pretty intense predators that do some crazy things. And and no one realizes that either, which is the best part. No, <laughs> no. Wow. Yeah. So uh, didn't you say that uh, that the the the, the fellow that you were working with in the same lab, like didn't even know what he was looking at at first until until oh no they didn't know what they were looking at but they were able to swim right up to him that is unbelievable and perfectly vertical straight up and down tail up head down tail up man yeah that is awesome wow (laughs) it is (laughs) it's just like it's something straight out of uh the the uh Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I got to ask you a question because you mentioned um, the, the time that Ben dumped those salted minnows down the hole and you retrieved them when you caught a, 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 a burbot the next day. Would you chum for burbot? Is that a good strategy on a lake? Uh, if you knew they were somewhere in the area, uh, what about chumming one or two spots uh, with cut up? sucker meat or whatever and and the other thing is when you were talking about the bondi and lifting it high you were banging it on the bottom you were communicating uh with them then too eh 
Oh yeah, that that spinner. They they love spinners. The flat walleye, the real bait walleye flasher jig, and then the tournament series with the Gamagatsu hook. That blade, that willow blade, it talks to them, and it hits bottom, and it clangs against the shank of the hook. And they love blades, and um, I believe they love blades more than they'd like rattles. Wow! Because we've tried rattle baits, and and they do respond to rattle baits. Don't get me wrong. But a rattle bait is not as natural, perhaps, as a blade is. A wall, you know, the 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 thrum of an eight, number eight Colorado blade. Um, and yeah, no, we're we're we <laughs> were talking their language, or we weren't talking their language. I'm not sure, but they absolutely did not, would not tolerate that bait being anywhere closer to the bottom than three or four feet wow they did not wow. and if you're up if you're up there like they're um you know they'll live and let live as long as you're not where i have to you know patrol this is my job this is what i do this is what i'm gonna do is that during the spawn like are you targeting that's during the spawn and, and it, i mean you said that you don't typically catch the fish that are guarding the area but are is that is that are those the fish that's being attracted to that that uh, very yeah the non-breeders aren't going to eat that they're not the non-breed or sorry the breeders yeah they're the rock stars that are that can leave and fill up their bellies yeah they're not interested in the bondy no. Wow. So, so you, you, you don't usually catch the non-breeders typically speaking, or at least, uh, it's a little bit harder to target them. The, the, the breeders come in and eat whatever they want whenever they see like something they, that they're interested in, but by yeah. banging the bait off of the bottom, you're attracting the non-breeders, the fish that are yep. guarding the area and protecting the other fishes, the, the other fishes fry. They'll, they're yep. literally attracted to this noise and they come in just like a smallmouth. If you put something in their bed, they're going to take it and get rid of it. And that's what they're doing. Yeah, and that's what they'll do with, with uh, tip-ups. Um, when, uh, Gord, back when we were doing the In Fisherman Ice Guide series, um, Chip Lear came, and uh, he came specifically for burbot, which I'm still geeked out about. Um, and uh, I took him to a different spot. Like, we did the burbot, or, yeah, we did the burbot thing. And uh, then we went to a different spot where there were burbot and pike. So, you know, we want to have a combo. And Dave Panning, who's my favorite camera guy, uh, him and I actually set up the aqua view on one of the tip-up shiners or, or herring, right? So we set up this tip-up and nothing was happening, nothing was happening. We got a pop on one of the other flags. So... Chip went and ran, and by the time he got there, the fish was gone. But there was a bunch of line out. So we're sitting there, well, how on earth would Pike, like, why are we doing blah, blah, blah. So anyway, we reset that. Five minutes later, maybe less than five minutes later, the same flag popped. <laughs> Nothing. Again. So Dave and I set up on that tip-up, and it was a burbot. It was a burbot. It was a non-breeder. It was picking up the the herring, swimming both 30, 40 feet with it, and spitting it out. Wow. Dropping. Wow. So yep. that's dropping just like a small Just like so, a small So I knew immediately what to do because Ben and I, uh, he, uh, you know, I was trying to teach him all the different stuff, so we're doing the tip-up thing. And we found that with burbot, non-breeders or breeders, if you took a flasher jig, so it's a stand-up jig, and you glommed at least two jumbo shiners on there, and we cut them so that there was all blood and guts. And you let that sit on the bottom, that non-breeder would pick that up, and as it's swimming away with it, it was so small and compact and juicy, it would swallow it instead of spit it out. So we, we did that. We only did that when we intended to keep some fish, because every single one of them would swallow it. So uh, that flasher jig with that that tournament series jig with that heavy heavy hook on it um they just couldn't resist then they would actually swallow it so that goes hand in hand with the whole chum concept mm. and to answer your question gord i think chumming uh, the burbot spot with your leftover shiners and stuff not only would it 
mean that they might be interested in that little tiny area. Um, but for a non-breeder that is already losing liver condition, it's losing body condition, for it to be able to eat three or four Schneiders or something, I think that might put them, get them across the finish line. <laughs> so I, I, I think it's fair game, you know. Um, so uh, we usually, whether we're going back or not, we like to give the fish a little bit of appreciation and dump a, dump what's left of the shiners down the hole. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Jeffy, tell me what your best day was, biggest bourbon, um, the highlight of your bourbon fishing career. What was it? Well, it's kind of funny because uh, my biggest one, um, I was actually in a walleye tournament with my friend uh, in at Diefenbaker in the spring. And um, I hooked this thing. This is, again, when I was just a kid in university. Hooked this big thing. And I'm fighting it, and I'm fighting it, and it's taking line, and it's fighting it. And uh, Michael Snuck, who wrote the book Fishing in Saskatchewan, I gave you a copy of that, Gord, yeah. a good friend of mine. Mike netted that fish, and it was 40-inch bourbon, oh. probably in the 15-pound range. And uh, so that was that was my biggest bourbon. I've got a picture of it. I um, another friend of mine gave him, gave me a blue quantum hat, so I'm wearing my tournament hat and I'm holding this 58 pound bourbon. And Mike was very very proud of me, but we weren't supposed to be catching bourbon. <laughs> but um, but I'd have to say my favorite my favorite bourbon adventure was with Ben, and we were fishing that. Uh, slot that I was telling you about that's about 10 feet deep and that current was coming through the middle there and uh, we were we had the tip up bite down he's four years old and I know I've sent you this picture Gord of him holding that burbot like it's a big flathead catfish yep. and he caught about a 12 13 pound burbot and he was it was just about as long as him and he's got both of his hands in the mouth just like the bottom jaw of a flathead he's holding it against his body and this big body on it is a big breeder. And uh, at that day, we had to keep most of our fish because we were tip-up fishing, which was fine. Like, we caught eight, eight or ten of them. And um, he couldn't, he he ran the whole time that that uh, we were fishing. And his little, <laughs> his little skidoo suit and pads were just <laughs> soaked with slime. Wow. It was awesome. It was really, really good. And that's what I, that's, that's how I really fell in love with them and gave, became absolutely infatuated with them is because of big fish, lots of them, and uh, an incredible character fish through the ice. I don't know if there's anything like them that, that, that can compare to that many amazing biology stories. <laughs> <laughs> 